from something very wonderful and bright to something quite dark. Second Samuel uh, chapter 13, Amnon and Tamar. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I'd like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so that I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I'd like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so that I may eat it from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may, I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He won't keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him. Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you, than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe that she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister, he is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. 
And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Thank you to Alison for leading us in such wonderful songs, and then for Christine leading us in such a, a hard passage to read. don't know how you felt whenever that passage was being read. Did you feel outrage? Did you feel anger? Did you feel compassion? Did you feel shame? Did you feel guilt? Every time I hear that passage read, uh, it affects me. But the question is, how should I respond? How should we respond to this passage? And that's the question that we'll come back to at the end of this evening. But first, a little background. As Alison mentioned, this is part of our ongoing series number two in the life of King David. And in the last installment, two weeks ago, David had sinned. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. David had sinned. David had been forgiven, and David had been restored. But there was a consequence. And the consequence was that the Lord said to, to David, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. And tonight, we're going to see the beginning of that calamity. Amnon, who we meet at the start of the story, was David's firstborn. He was the heir, the next king of Israel. Absalom was born to a second wife of David, and he was second in line, and his sister was Tamar. So Absalom and Tamar had the same mother, and Amnon came from a different mother, so he was the half-brother or half-sister. And as we look at the passage, what we're going to do is try and see it through three different perspectives, three different sets of eyes. Firstly, what would it have been like a thousand BC in the time of Ammonon. Secondly, looking at it from today's eyes, our own eyes. And thirdly, how would Jesus have seen it? 3,000 years ago, well, women didn't really count. Women were <laughs> objects. Women belonged to the man, the father, or the husband. And really, society placed a low value on women. What about today? Well, two weeks ago, whenever Drew was talking um, to us about uh, David and Bathsheba, he gave us a statistic, a statistic that 30% of 15-year-old boys in Northern Ireland are viewing internet pornography on a daily basis. So between internet pornography, violent computer games, what sort of values is our society putting on women? Are we objectifying them? And are we giving them similarly? low value. What about Jesus' eyes? How did Jesus view women? And if you think back, Jesus saw the widow in the temple giving her last penny, and he commended her for that. And Jesus saw the woman who touched his robe because she was ill, and he healed her. 
And Jesus saw the woman who washed and dried his feet, and he blessed her. Such a different response to women than perhaps the eyes of today or a thousand BC. And as we use those three different perspectives or three different sets of eyes, we're going to firstly look at the story itself, and then we're going to try and apply it to our lives today. And finally, we're going to ask, what does Jesus say in the midst of all this? And at the end, don't forget our question at the start, how do we respond? So let's look at the story. The story really, like a play, breaks down into four scenes, and we will look at those four scenes in turn. Firstly, Amnon's bedroom. And Amnon is in love. He's moping around like a lovesick teenager. He's infatuated. He's besotted. He's thinking about nothing else. All he can think of is Tamar. He is so preoccupied. He is so distracted that he actually can think of nothing else. He makes himself ill, and he takes to bed. But stop for a minute. What is this in love that Amnon is feeling? Here is one simple test for Amnon. And here is a very simple test for us today. How does my love match up to this? This is what Paul writes in Corinthians. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't force itself on others. That's not what is in Amnon's heart. That's not how he is feeling towards Tamar. He's got no concern for her. He's got no love for her. He only feels lust. He only wants what he cannot have. And so he is frustrated, the Bible says, because she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. To her. For him to do anything to her. Amnon is not interested in love that cares, in love that think of the other person. Amnon only wants to satisfy his own needs, his own desires, his own lusts at any cost. What Amnon needs right now is a godly friend. Someone who will point out the sin, will point out the dangers of temptation. Someone that will steer him away. Someone that will help him to fight this temptation. Someone like Paul, who was able to say to Timothy, run, Timothy, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. And instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Sadly, Amnon has Jonadab for a friend. And the Bible tells us that Jonadab was his cousin and a very shrewd man. Shrewd enough to see Amnon's problems and to suggest a grotesque plan. Tamar is the completely innocent victim in all this story, and I will say that again through the passage and through the sermon. Tamar was the completely innocent victim in this whole story. <clears throat> she does what her father asks, and she bakes bread for Amnon, and she serves him. And when Amnon tries to rape her, she pleads with him both for her own sake and for his sake, don't do this. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger, he raped her. And now we see the full depths of this love that Amnon had, because suddenly it is an intense hatred, a hatred that is deeper and more intense than the lust that he felt moments earlier. 
And again, she pleads with him, don't do this. Sending me away now will be worse than what you've already done to me. And yet, what does he do? He scorns her. He throws her out on the street. And he doesn't even use her name. Get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. And so this scene ends with a disgraced, distraught woman, abused and left completely devastated. Scene two, Absalom's house. Here she's going to find help. Here is her full brother. He will look after her. Surely he will support her and comfort her. Surely he will listen to her and have some understanding. Surely he will act with compassion and with care. Tamar needs someone to take her side, someone to listen, someone to understand, someone to tell her that it's not her fault. What does Absalom do? He tells her not to worry about it, not to say anything. Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. He gives her no chance to talk about it, no chance to be understood, no chance to be supported. And Absalom himself, he stays silent. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. Complete silence. What kind of man is Absalom? How could he be so cold and heartless? How could he have no love or sympathy? How could he do such a wrong to his sister? And the answer to that is the word ambition. Absalom doesn't want to be second in line to the throne. He wants to be king. And he sees an opportunity. And the chapter goes on to show how Amnon waits his time and kills Amnon. And further chapters go on to show how Amnon waits his time and then, sorry, Absalom waits his time and then overthrows his own father, David. In scene one, it was Amnon's appetites that overpowered him. But in scene two, it is Absalom ruled by cold, calculating ambition. Ambition that made him willing to sacrifice his own sister and her needs because he saw an opportunity. Scene three, location unknown, but probably David's palace. And we read, when King David heard all this, he was furious. Okay, David, what are you gonna do with this fury? First, are you gonna run and care for and show compassion to your daughter? First, are you gonna run and dispense justice to Amnon, who has so wronged Tamar? Or first, are you going to go and sort out Absalom for his caring and callous attitude? Tell us, David, what did you do first? Tragically, appallingly, David does none of these things. Earlier in the chapter, David had run to the bedside of Amnon, his sixth son, but it doesn't record him ever going to see his daughter Tamar. What brought David to such a low point? God describes David as a man after his own heart, a man whose heart beats to my own heart. How could he not respond with God's heart in this situation? And perhaps the answer lies two chapters back. David 
had lusted after a woman he could not have. David had committed adultery. David had had her husband murdered to cover it up. Perhaps David felt he had lost the right to speak on sexual matters. He had let God down. How could he speak to Amnon with integrity or with moral authority? Or perhaps he could not bear to punish his firstborn son, the one destined to be king. Here's an interesting verse written about David and another of David's sons. And it says, his father had spoiled him rotten as a child, never once reprimanding him. David, you need to reprimand your son. Or perhaps David had just heard that prophecy that calamity would fall on the house and well, this is calamity falling, and he just accepted it. Whatever the reason, David abdicated his responsibility. His responsibility to his three children. In all of these things, towards all of them, he was absent. And in this vacuum, in this absence, things only deteriorated further. How I wish we could read of David acting decisively. I wish verse 22 talks about God acting in, or David acting in a God-honoring way, using his fury in a godly way, that we could see David bringing comfort to his daughter, dispensing justice to his son, showing moral responsibility and leadership and courage. Instead, scene three closes with David furious, but abdicating all responsibility. He was absent. Scene four, back at Absalom's house. And we read, And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. What a sad, sad story. Raped by your half-brother, silenced by your brother, abandoned by your father. In all of these things, Tamar was innocent. None of it was her fault. What a tragic ending with Tamar living her life as a desolate woman. This is not an exception. There was a book review in last week's uh, paper, a book written by a man called James Rhodes who had been abused and raped and who then writes an autobiography. And this is the way the reviewer describes Rhodes' language. He says that Rhodes curses the comfort and the abyss of always seeing oneself a victim. There is nothing else but the rape, the origin and center of his world. Rhodes never got beyond, never got past being a victim and the rape being the center of everything. And the Bible tells us, nor did Tamar. So how do we apply this awful story. We've seen some terrible sins, massive sins from Amnon and Absalom and David. And yet, I believe they represent tendencies in all of us. Amnon, his sins are sins of the present, of appetites, of things that are hard to resist and need to be satisfied immediately. Absalom, his sin was a sin of the future a sin of ambition, of cold, calculating ambition that was willing to trample on anybody in his way, including his sister. 
For David, it was about a sin of the past and of absence, so trapped by guilt that he no longer acts in a godly way. And if we just look at those three uh, briefly, and if we start with sins of the present, how do we apply that to ourselves, to our appetites? Or perhaps the most direct application is what goes on behind closed doors? What goes on in the bedroom? What goes on in reality or in fantasy? On screens or in our heads? Sins that we allow to preoccupy us, to fill our minds just like Amnon did. Our appetites are much wider than just sexual. In many other areas, we are also open to temptation and to sin. Temptations that are so powerful that they seem that they have to be yielded to right now. Remember Paul's advice. Run. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Spurgeon said that you cannot stop the birds flying overhead, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. What temptations am I allowing to rest in my head instead of chasing them away? Secondly, what about sins of the future? What ambitions are dominating my life? Am I tramping on others to get ahead? Am I using people to achieve my own ends? Or if we try and apply it more widely, what am I holding on to so tightly that I cannot give it to God? Corey Tenboom said, hold everything in your hands lightly, otherwise it hurts when God prizes your fingers open. What bit of my future is so important to me that I cannot trust God for it, that I will use my own methods, my own ends to achieve it? Because Jesus asked this question, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Thirdly, sins of the past. What about sins of omission and of absence? Are there times whenever I could have acted but did nothing? Times when I could have spoken out for someone but stayed silent? Sins, sinful behavior that I saw but neglected uh, to do anything about? Do I have a past, something that I still feel guilty about no matter how many times I take it to God? Something in my past life that is paralyzing me, stopping me from living from God? David had repented with all his heart for his sin over Bathsheba. David had confessed to God, I have sinned against the Lord. And David had heard the word spoken back to him, the Lord has taken away your sin. All of this has happened. David should be living freely for God in forgiveness. And yet it seems as if the devil with his lies was just keeping David trapped with ongoing guiltiness, ongoing uh, words of uselessness for God. The devil can keep throwing in our faces previous sins, previous failures that tell us to give up. So what of these three sins? Does any of them resonate with you? Can you identify with any of them? So consumed by intense desire that it's too hard to resist, too hard to live for God? Or so focused on the future, so focused on my plans that I fail to give God his place? 
or so trapped and paralyzed by some sin from the past that it seems that God can never use me again. I found it such a challenge to work through this material. For me, this chapter just captures the sinfulness of the heart, and perhaps especially men's hearts. But what does God say to these three men? God doesn't appear in the text, but what would he have been saying to them? And in turn, what would he say to us? And we must not forget Tamar and her desolation. What does God say to her? Firstly, what does God say to Amnon? What do you say to a man who has lusted and hated, who has raped and spurned? I believe the first thing that God says to Amnon is, Amnon, I love you. Amnon, I love you. And because I love you, I cannot ignore your sin. Here's what your love looks like. Your love looks like self and greed and indulgence and power and sin. Amnon, here's what my love looks like. My love is seen in sacrifice. My love is seen on a cross. I willingly died for you. I willingly took the punishment for your rape of Tamar. Will you repent? Will you come to me for forgiveness? I love you, Amnon. I wonder, did Amnon ever hear those words? And if he did, did he ever respond? Because, you see, God treats none of us as our sins deserve. God offers love and forgiveness to each of us, no matter what we have done. Secondly, Absalom. What does God say to Absalom? Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom. Those were the cry, that was the cry of David when he hears later on that his son Absalom is killed. But those were words of an indulgent father about a spoiled child. A spoiled child who did not care for Tamar, did not care for David, and did not care for God. But what does God say? Well, God still loves Absalom. And God can say with true love, Absalom, my son, turn to me. Please listen to me. You will never find what you're looking for. You will never be satisfied. Your ambition will never bring reward. Only in me will you find true contentment, true satisfaction, true completion in me. Let go, Absalom, of this selfish ambition and turn to me, my son, Absalom. And to David, God says again, I have forgiven you. You have been renewed. You have learned the awful outcome of sexual sin and have been forgiven. Now use that knowledge, use that forgiveness to help Tamar, to help Amnon in this dreadful situation. You can know God's blessing again. Nothing you have done is too bad, too dark, too sinful that I cannot renew and forgive. David, I have forgiven you Now I live in my forgiveness. And what does God say to Tamar? In scene four, we left Tamar, a desolate woman. 
In verse 13, she asked, where could I get rid of my disgrace? And it would be so easy for Tamar to spend the rest of her life feeling dirty and ashamed, feeling guilty. Tamar was the completely innocent victim of rape. Tamar was horribly treated by her family and let down by the law, yet so often it's the innocent victim that feels guilty, feels it was somehow their fault. What does God say to Tamar? Firstly, God says, my daughter, my daughter, I love you. You have been abused again and again by people you loved and trusted. My love for you is pure and good and kind. I love you, my daughter. Secondly, God would say, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And Tamar may need to hear this again and again. Tamar, it's not your fault. And thirdly, God would say, I can heal you. I can renew you. In Psalm 147, we read that God heals the brokenhearted and he binds their wounds. Tamar, I can't heal your broken heart. I can bind your wounds. God talks about Christ and the church in this way. And can you hear it through Tamar's eyes or ears? Christ loved her and gave himself up for her to make her holy and clean, cleansing her by the washing of water to present her to himself as radiant without a stain or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to Tamar? Tamar, I give myself for you. I will cleanse you. I will make you radiant. You will be without stain or any other blemish. You will be holy and blameless. Tamar, I can heal you. So far in this chapter, we've looked at it through three different sets of eyes. We've looked through the eyes of sinful men 3,000 years ago. We've tried to see the equivalent through our own eyes. And we've tried to see it through Jesus' eyes. But what then should our response be? And I think there are two ways in which we can respond to this chapter. And the first response has to be to turn to God. If there is a sin that needs to be addressed, turn to God with it. In previous chapter, David had acknowledged his sin before God and said, against you and you only have I sinned. There were moral consequences, legal consequences, emotional consequences, physical consequences to David's sin and to Amnon's sin. But of first priority, David recognized, against you, against you have I sinned. And our first priority is to get right with God. Our first response must be to turn to God in repentance. Or what if you have been a victim you may be suffering terrible consequences as Tamar was. Of first priority, turn to God. It is in God that there is healing. It is in God that there is renewal. And our second response, find a godly friend. Amnon was only pulled deeper and deeper into sin by his friend Jonadab. Tamar was denied friendship from her own brother. 
David had had such good, godly friend, friendship from Nathan in the previous chapter, how David would have benefited from Nathan's friendship in this chapter. Find a godly friend. And if you need help in dealing with sin, and we all do, then find a godly friend. Ask them to hold you to your account. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them to pray with you. Or if you've been a victim, a victim of any sort of abuse and stayed silent, tell someone. Find a godly friend and ask for support. There also is a pastoral care team available here, and if you want to speak to anybody in confidence, then that is available uh, as well. But in summary, turn to God and find a godly friend are our two responses to this chapter. We've reached the end of our study. And as we finish, before we sing our last song, we're going to have a time for reflection. Stephen's going to come and play the piano. Just a time for us to listen to what God would have to say to us. And just a time for us to respond to him. And then as we're singing the last hymn, um, then there will be people at the front to pray with you. So if God has been speaking to you, if this passage is saying something to you, then don't walk out the door without addressing it. But turn to God and pray with a godly friend.